For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at Romans 13. How should Christians respond to their civil rulers? Now, a little bit of context here. As you can recall, Paul just finished up this large section about how we should deal with persecution as it arises. And he sort of summarizes how we should respond to people who mistreat us, including governmental authorities. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So he calls on us to resist the impulse to retaliate when people commit wrongdoing against us, when they show hostility to us because of our belief in Christ. And, you know, this brings to mind a story I remember reading about as a very young Christian. It was from Watchman Nee's book, Sit, Walk, Stand, where he talks about this situation that arose in China, where he lived, where there were a group of believers who lived in a small village. And, you know, in a Chinese village, typically there is a, uh, some terraces, rice paddies along the mountainside. So each family would own one terrace, and usually below them, another family owned another terrace, so on and so forth. So one Christian family would go up to their rice paddy, their terrace, and find that in the afternoon when they would fill up all of their, their, their terrace to the top with water, that by the afternoon, it had been drained into the rice terrace right below them. And so they would plug the hole, refill the rice terrace, and then the next day they would find the same situation where there was a hole in the terrace and the terrace below them had all of the water that was there earlier that day. So this believing family convened sort of a council of Christians and asked, what do you think we should do? Because obviously the family right below us is draining our rice terrace and all of its water into their own so they don't have to refill their terrace every single day. And after some discussion and some prayer, they said, it's important that we not only do the right thing, but as believers in Christ, we must ultimately do the most loving thing. So for the following week, the family decided that they were going to go early in the morning and fill not only their rice terrace with water, which was arduous labor, and then they would also fill the terrace below them where the family was stealing their water. They did this day after day for a week, and finally, the, one of the family members who owned the terrace right below came to them and said, why are you doing this? And it was an opportunity for them to share the, the message of Jesus Christ. So it's a really, I think, beautiful illustration of the kind of love and good that we can do to overcome wrongdoing that we may experience. So that really sets the tone or, or really gives us a framework for what Paul's going to say next. He says in verses 1 through 7 in Romans 13, let everyone be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but only for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers don't bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, also because of matter of conscience. This is, only, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay. 
I'm sure that as you're reading this, you're, you're probably bristling a little bit. Now, <clears throat> I think the original audience would have had the same reaction. They would have chafed, especially the Jewish believers in this particular group, would have chafed against Paul's teaching here in part because Emperor Claudius just several years earlier expelled all of the Jewish Christians from Rome. We know about this from the New Testament and also extra-biblical sources. For example, Priscilla and Aquila, who are mentioned in the book of Acts, were taking refuge in other cities within the Roman Empire because Claudius the emperor had expelled the Jewish Christians. So the Jewish people were at odds with the Roman government at this time. If you know anything about the Old Testament, God set up a theocracy where he wanted the nation of Israel to live and be governed by the Mosaic law. So it was a very special situation. And he gave the nation of Israel autonomy. Now, at some point throughout Israel's history, they, they came under Roman rule And the Romans actually gave them a little bit of freedom to be able to rule their own people, but ultimately they were under Rome's thumb. They were an oppressed people. So this was difficult, I think, for many Jewish Christians to hear in this audience because they constantly felt like they were being mistreated by the Romans. The Romans would raise taxes so that many of the people in Jerusalem and in Israel were poor. There were times where the Romans, in order to demonstrate their power and authority, would come in and and, um, press a military campaign upon Israel. So it was difficult, I think, for Jewish Christians to hear this for a lot of the, the different altercations that they had with the Roman government. But this also would have been difficult for Christians in general since the Roman Empire viewed Christian teaching as a threat. For example, even early on in Acts chapter 17, verse 6 and 8, we're told that in Thessalonica, the people there, when Paul and his companions arrived to share the message of Jesus Christ, they were saying these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. They're defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. So that was one of the main reasons why They felt like Christians were sending the Roman world into this upheaval was they were declaring that there was actually another legitimate king and that was Jesus Christ. And of course, in a totalitarian government to claim somebody else is the actual ruler or has the right to rule, then it's going to create tension with the government. Not to mention, one of the things that's really interesting about Roman history is that many historians have actually theorized that one of the things that really bothered the Romans, that that made Christianity seem like such a threat was the fact that Christianity was very inclusive. That it invited particularly slaves of the Roman Empire to see themselves as actual equals to regular citizens. In fact, we have statements in the New Testament that talks about how we are no longer divided along socioeconomic lines. We're no longer divided among gender lines or racial lines, but we are all one in Christ. So this message really undermined the social fabric of the Roman Empire, which constituted, I think, about a third of its population was slaves. And so really, this teaching that was spreading throughout the Roman Empire became sort of the undoing of the Roman Empire because they counted on the slave population to keep their their empire running. So there was tension there, I think, for a lot of Christians who experienced incredible persecution from the Roman Empire. I think, too, throughout history, we see that there have been oppressive right-wing regimes that have used this passage to require submission and warn of rebellion. One of the early 19th, 19th and, uh, or 20th century theologians, Oscar Kuhlman, says, 
Few sayings in the New Testament have suffered as much misuse as this one. As soon as Christians out of loyalty to the gospel of Jesus Christ offer resistance to a state's totalitarian claim, their collaborationist theological advisors are accustomed to appeal to this saying of Paul as if Christians are here commanded to endorse and thus to abet all the crimes of a totalitarian state. You see, Coleman, he actually lived in Nazi Germany. And he was an outspoken critic of Hitler and the National Socialist Movement. We actually see quite a few examples of this. For example, Otto Debelius was a Protestant theologian and pastor in Nazi Germany, and he actually cited Romans 13 as a basis for people to give their support to Hitler and the National Socialists. In another case, we see P.W. Botha, who was the president in South Africa during the apartheid. And there has been um, an example where Botha actually stood before um, the council in South Africa and basically read Romans 13 as, as a way to legitimize the nationalist government's apartheid. So we see examples of Romans 13 being used to bolster these oppressive right-wing regimes. And yet, I think when we look at a passage like this, it, it deserves, I think, careful analysis to understand what exactly did Paul intend when he was writing this. So let's, let's go back through this and try to unpack it, starting in verse 1. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So he says, let everyone be subject to governing authorities. One thing you should take note of is that Paul could have easily used the Greek word for obey. And yet he uses the word subjection which doesn't actually mean inferiority because God actually tells believers in passages like Ephesians 5 verse 21 that we should be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So this, this kind of subjection, being subject to another person, doesn't take away from your dignity or give the government a license to essentially dictate how you should live your life even though it requires you to compromise yourself morally. He says, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Now it's easy, I think, to look at something like this at face value and say that what Paul's saying here is that God has established every governing authority. And that, that's kind of a difficult proposition to swallow because when you look at the history of humanity, even in our current day, we see that there are corrupt governments, totalitarian governments. Are we to suggest that God himself established those totalitarian leaders, these corrupt officials? I think what he's suggesting here is that God has granted governing authorities the ability to rule. And he's not saying in specific situations. In fact, he doesn't mean that he's actually, or Paul doesn't mean that God approves of everything that these government authorities do because we see examples where the apostles themselves criticize some of these governing authorities. You look at Peter in the book of Acts. There are a couple of cases where he speaks out against Pontius Pilate saying that he was a wicked man who unjustly crucified Jesus. So he's not suggesting here that God is sovereign and has placed individuals in these roles. Instead, what he's talking about is God's permissive will, that God has created governments to curb evil in the world, but in some cases, because of human fallenness, these governments have fallen into corruption. And God has allowed this to happen in his sovereignty, not that he caused it, but that he works this way throughout human history. 
that God has a directive will and a permissive will. In other words, he permits certain things to happen even though he doesn't like it. I think a lot of people struggle with this concept of God's permissive will. I mean, you look out into the world and you see horrific acts of violence, you see genocides, you see all of this evil in the world, and you think to yourself, how can a good God allow things like this to happen? And yet I think it's important for us to see that without God's permissive will, you really don't have the, the basis for God's mercy and his patience. If God doesn't allow evil to exist in the world, if he stomped it out every single time it appeared, then what room would there be for people to repent? What room would there be for people to lay down their rebellion and to accept God's authority? So one of the things that God does is he sees that there is evil in the world and that's, that's painful him, for him to see. I mean, we, we, we look throughout scripture and there are a number of times where God himself is grieved at what he's seeing in the world and yet the end game for him is that he wants to allow people time to be able to turn back to him because he knows that if he enacts justice right now, that many, many people will be eternally separated from him. He says in verse two, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Notice Paul doesn't say that anyone who rebels against governing authorities rebels against God. He says specifically that anyone who rebels against God's instituted authority. So he's not saying that if you rebel against government, that you're rebelling against God. He's suggesting that you're rebelling against the authority God has instituted in this specific government. And so what Paul's laying out here isn't really... um, it doesn't square necessarily with reality. It's more like a maxim. That it's an ideal, not the reality that we see um, expressed on earth. He says in verse three, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one with authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. So, Again, it's important to see that he's dealing with an ideal, not the reality. He's not suggesting that every single government is just and that if you do good things, the government will stay out of your hair, but every time you do evil, you'll receive just punishment. Paul's not that naive. In fact, we see that there are cases where Paul himself was the victim of unjust government. So, again, I think what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about the ideal, not the specifics. Okay, I think one thing that we want to ask as we study this passage, and I think Paul's going to help give us some illumination on, is what role does the government play in our lives? He says in verse four, for the one in government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers don't bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, this bearing the sword, some commentators believe that what Paul is talking specifically about here is the government's authority to be able to punish evil. He's not necessarily talking about capital punishment, although it may include it, but he's talking about the government's ability to maintain some sort of order and to curb evil in the world. And so what he's suggesting here is that God has given the government authority to prevent further evil from unleashing in the world. Um. I think when you look at the absence of government, often it's worse than even having a corrupt government in some cases. 
Think about the example of Syria today, a modern-day example. I mean, this country has been in the midst of a civil war since 2011, eight years. And this civil war has claimed, at this point, they estimate about 500,000 lives and have displaced four million people. So we get sort of a glimpse into what what would chaos, what would anarchy look like in a country without a ruling authority? And you have examples present today of what that would look like. So that's one of the reasons why God has established a ruling authority is, is to try to prevent these situations where you have roving groups of people who are self-interested and willing to, to bear arms and, mili- and use military force in order to get what they want. Now, I think the other question we should ask as sort of a counterpoint is, what role should the church play in the world? I think, first of all, God says that we are ambassadors for Christ in the world. He says that specifically in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we are representatives of Christ here on earth, that our true citizenship is actually in heaven the moment we receive Christ, that we're actually awaiting our heavenly home. But in the meantime, we're sort of sojourners. We're resident aliens here, and what we're called to do, our mission from God, is actually to act as ambassadors. You think about an ambassador. An ambassador isn't allowed to just say whatever he or she thinks or wants, right? You know, they have to stay on script. They have to represent, not only in word, but also in deed, what their country has sent them to do and say. So likewise, people are inevitably going to associate what we say and what we do with God's agenda. That's a scary proposition, So we're to act as ambassadors for Christ in the world and specifically what God wants us to do is to call people to turn to him. That he loves people so much so that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die to pay for our wrongdoing. So what God is looking for from us is to act as peace brokers. To try to reconcile the lost world, the world in rebellion, back to him, the rightful ruler of this world. Also, Jesus never wanted us to overtake government. You know, you think about certain segments of our culture today. And the belief is that what we need to do is we need to take America back for God. Because this is God's country. And so what we need to do is we need to try to install as many Christians in the political sphere as possible so that we can overtake the government and start to legislate biblical morals so that we can become the moral majority. And yet, what does Jesus say about this? He says in John chapter 18, verse 36 and 37, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. For this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So Jesus didn't come in this first appearance to try to establish a government. And he certainly didn't want to do that through us. In fact, there are a number of very specific statements that he makes suggesting that there should be a separation between the church and the state. For example, in Matthew 22, verse 17, I love this interaction. Jesus was talking to these religious leaders and they were trying to trip him up. They knew that there was a controversy where, on the one hand, many Jewish people were upset about the Romans raising taxes to this oppressive level, but also... He knew that, they knew that if Jesus misspoke and actually said something critical about the Roman government or made a statement that subverted their authority to tax the Jewish people, that they could report him to the Roman authorities. So they said this. They said, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Loaded question. I'm sure there were a lot of people standing around too. 
But Matthew says, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? He says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to what to God, what is God's? He probably said, I'm, and I'm going to keep this coin, too. <laughs> I mean, you know, I wish, I wish I had this capability, like Jesus, to be able to just think like that on the spot and come up with these amazing retorts to uh, people's questions, but you know, what's clear here is that Jesus, on the, on the one hand, is affirming the Roman government's sphere of authority because God has established government. But he doesn't see that as diametrically opposed to God's authority because he knows ultimately that we owe our lives to God and he is the one who determines who can have authority on earth. And so he clearly demarcates the sphere of government and its authority and God's authority over our lives. I think really the trouble comes when either the state or the church oversteps its boundaries. That's where you run into a lot of problems. For example, when the state takes God's role, you run into a number of problems. In the early church, one of the things that the emperor required was that people of the Roman Empire actually pay homage and worship the emperor as a form of deity. And so many Christians actually lost their lives and faced incredible persecution because they refused to worship anyone but God himself. Think about a more modern example during the Cultural Revolution in China where the Chinese communists believed that the Western influence was a, a power structure that was meant to oppress the lower class. And so what they did was they went through the entire country and eradicated anything or anyone who represented Western thought. And this led to millions of people losing their lives. So we see incredible problems. We, we see catastrophes happen when the state tries to take God's role. Now, when the state subordinates itself to the church, you find that there are a number of problems as well. For example, in, in the church's unfortunate history, it has used this to forcibly convert people and punish non-Christian people, committing heinous acts in the name of Jesus Christ. Also, it's weakened the integrity of the church's mission. Around the 300s AD, Constantine, one of the Roman emperors, decided that he was going to convert to Christianity. It's not clear whether he was a Christian. Most, most people actually think he wasn't a Christian, that he was doing this as sort of a political move in order to win the growing population of Christians in Rome. And so what happened was when Constantine became a Christian or claimed to be a Christian, many people followed suit because in order to occupy some of these higher governmental roles and higher positions in society, you needed to be a Christian. And so it perpetuated what's called nominalism, that you are a Christian in name only. You see a lot of that here in America today in the modern church where people who think because they grew up in a family that's Christian or went to church all their lives that they're essentially a Christian. And that's how many people were operating, even though many people actually didn't have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. I think the other thing we should talk about is how should Christians respond to their civil rulers? And that's kind of where we're heading with this whole talk. How should we respond to our civil rulers? Paul says in verse 5, Therefore, it's necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, also as a matter of conscience. So, um, he cites two things. First of all, that we should be subject to our authorities for two reasons. One, because we should be afraid of being punished as, as being a wrongdoer. 
And secondly, he says, as a matter of conscience, when we face persecution for living uh, for Christ, that when we do that, we can do so with a clear conscience. Instead of being punished as somebody who's committed acts of wrongdoing and as a result are experiencing the consequences of our behavior. Now, I think some might say, what about corrupt governments, right? Are we suggesting that we should be subject to corrupt governments? I think it's important for us to keep in mind that Paul was writing this in the mid-50s A.D. when Nero was emperor. And Nero at the time, I don't think, was really showing his cards. We knew that he was sort of deranged. But it took its full expression about 10 years later when in about 64 A.D., Nero, most historians think, uh, set fire to a large portion of Rome, the city. And what people thought was that Nero was actually motivated because he wanted to create this immense statue of himself. But the Roman Empire, or, or sorry, the city of Rome was so densely populated that Whenever you bought a parcel of land, you wouldn't just buy the parcel on the ground, but you would also have to consider, um, you know, the, the space that it occupied above it. And so Nero decided, from, from what most historians think, is they, he set fire to Rome in order to clear space for this statue, and the fire spread. And when people were questioning what happened, he blamed it on the Christians, which then sparked the persecution of Christians en masse throughout the entire Roman Empire. You know, Nero was, was a very cruel dictator. There are these reports where he would have parties and he would kill Christians um, and he would light them on fire in order to provide lighting for his parties as he rode around in a chariot naked. And so, you know, Nero, this dude, he made Saddam Hussein look like Mickey Mouse. I mean, he was a crazy person. And, um, you know, he, he persecuted the church. And so I think it's interesting that Paul was writing this at a time when there was growing suspicion that Nero was very corrupt. And that was also, I think, uh, demonstrated later uh, in Nero's career. And so I think we need to keep that in mind that, you know, Paul would have told the Christians, you need to be subject to this governing authority even though it's corrupt. And the reason is the consequences for rebelling could actually be worse that if you instigate the Roman Empire, they actually can annihilate this fledgling Christian movement that's starting in the Roman Empire. There's an example where in 67 AD, the Jewish people sparked a rebellion in Jerusalem. And the Romans marshaled an army to go march on, on Jerusalem and they decimated the city, they destroyed the temple, they killed a million Jewish people. And so I think that Paul was concerned that if Christians rebelled against the Roman Empire, the consequences would actually be worse than submitting to their governing authority. He says finally in verse six and seven, this is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone who you, uh, what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. So he tells them to respect and honor the governing authorities. And specifically, that they should pay their taxes. Okay, obviously, this is sort of a controversial topic. Even today, there are, you know, there are arguments between the right and the left today about how much tax the government should impose. 
how big government should be. And even though there's major disagreements over that specific issue, I think people on the right and the left both acknowledge that on some basic level, the government provides services that we all need. Therefore, there should be some taxation in order to support the governing authority that takes care of the things that we need. You know, for example, if my house is burning, I call 911, right? You don't hear me complaining about uh, the fire department when my house is aflame. Um, you know, if there's a creepy guy in my backyard, I'm calling 911. <laughs> you know, when I jump into my car, I'm driving on paved road for the most part, except for Hudson Avenue, which uh, looks like a street in Mogadishu. <laughs> but, you know, when you think about it, though, what he's saying here is that on some basic level, you have to pay tax in order to support the governing authorities who make things work in your nation state. Now, <clears throat> I think I want to add a few additional things to this. When we talk about how should we interact with government, I think, first of all, we should pray for our government and our leaders. Now, that may be difficult uh, depending on, you know, your political leanings and the current administration. But consider what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 and 2. He says, I urge you then, first of all, that requests, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Notice what he says we should pray for. We should pray that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. In other words, we pray that the governing authorities would not turn their attention on us in a negative way. That we would be free to carry out God's mission without having to face persecution. And so really, those, that should be the aim of our prayer for our leaders and our government. Secondly, because human governments are fallen and subject to corruption, we may also have to respond in one of three ways. First of all, we may need to call a government to its proper role. Take, for example, Acts chapter 16, verse 37. Paul, in this situation, walks into the city of Philippi and starts sharing the message of Christ, and the magistrates seize him, beat him, throw them in stocks, him and Silas, and when miraculously God frees them from prison, the magistrates the next morning show up. And they say, why don't we just let Paul and Silas go? And Paul says, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens. Little did they know that Paul was actually a Roman citizen, and it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen or to imprison them without a trial. He says, and they threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us so quietly? No. Let them come and escort us out themselves. So these magistrates sent this order. Okay, you guys are free. They, they let you out. And Paul's like, no, no. I'm a Roman citizen. Tell them to come here. I want to see them personally escort us out of the city. And they were shaking in their boots. So we see an example here where Paul was calling the government to its proper role based on its own statutes, based on its own laws. <clears throat> Martin Niemuller uh, talks about how it's important for us to speak against the government when it's violating its own laws and its own rule. He says, in Germany, they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and by that time, no one was left to speak up. Everyone knew that the National Socialist regime was violating the laws of the government. 
And yet, sadly, many, many leaders of the church failed to call the government back to its proper role. Philip Yancey talks about every time we get sort of cozied up with the government, the church does, that it has catastrophic results. He says the church works best as a force of resistance, a counterbalance to the consuming power of the state. The cozier the church gets with the state, the more watered down it becomes and the less able to challenge the surrounding culture. And so he's calling for a a separation between church and state. That part of our role is to call the government back to its proper role and to to act as a check when when it's overstepping its bounds. Secondly, in some cases, we may need to engage in civil disobedience when the government enjoins what the Bible forbids or forbids what the Bible enjoins. So I think it's important for us to see the difference between civil disobedience and civil protest. Okay? Civil disobedience means the government is calling me to do something that's immoral, so I'm going to disobey. Civil protest is speaking out against a social evil that the government is perpetuating, okay? There are a number of examples of civil disobedience in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Think about the, the Hebrew midwives. When Pharaoh issued an edict that all the, fir- the, the male children that were born in Egypt during a period of time were to be killed, the Hebrew midwives refused to do that and even lied. And God commended them for doing that. So here we have an example where God is commending acts of civil disobedience where they're subverting the government's authority. Think about in the situation with uh, Nebuchadnezzar where he says that the people of Babylon need to pray to him and bow down to him and we're told that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were were disobeying. They refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. We also see with Darius that he called on uh, the people of, of Persia to pray to him. And yet Daniel refuses to do that. The apostle Peter. Think about Acts chapter five. They go into Jerusalem. They start sharing the message of Jesus Christ and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council says, you cannot speak in the name of Jesus. You need to stop immediately. And what does Peter say? He says, I can't help what I'm doing here because I have to be faithful to God rather than, rather than to men. And so he continued to share the message of Jesus Christ. We also see a more current example of the underground church in China where the Chinese government has said, okay, you can teach Christianity, but there are a couple of things that you can't teach. Namely, you can't teach the second coming of Jesus Christ because that implies that there is another authority other than Chinese government. And so what many Christians have done is they have started underground networks in China where they have decided to break uh, free from from the Chinese government's call and in acts of civil disobedience. Finally, I think that there's also room for us to engage in civil protest. And, you know, I think it's important for us to see that God doesn't seek to redeem governments or transform societies through legislation, okay? The way that God intends to change people is by transforming people through the Holy Spirit, individual by individual, and transforming a society as more and more people come to know Jesus Christ. And so the thought that, you know, if we can just basically get our agenda pushed through in the political sphere, then that's really what's going to change our, our country and our world. Well, it might change things at least on an external level, but it's not going to change people's hearts, their attitudes. You know, you can legislate diversity, but that's not going to take away the racist thoughts and hateful thoughts that people have in their hearts. How does the government propose to change that? Chuck Colson, a former advisor to the president 
President Nixon, um, who actually spent some time in prison and met Christ while there, points out, today's misspent enthusiasm for political solutions to the moral problems of our culture arises from a distorted view of both politics and Christianity. It also ignores the consistent lesson of history that shows that laws are most often reformed as a result of powerful spiritual movements, not vice versa. I know of no case where a spiritual movement was achieved by passing laws. And you see tons of examples of this, especially the abolition of slavery, both in England and in the United States. Uh, Think about uh, William Wilberforce, who almost single-handedly was responsible for the abolition of slavery in the UK. Metaxas, who wrote a biography about Wilberforce's life, said the acutely Christian character of the British abolitionist movement is undeniable, for its leaders were all consciously acting out of it and their deeply held faith. Wilberforce claimed that the driving force behind him fighting against slavery in England was his, his Christian conviction, biblical conviction, that all people are created in the image of God. Make no mistake, that is the basis for real equality. That people are image bearers of God. Another great example of this is in 1688, the Quakers actually put together a petition called the Quaker Germantown Petition Against Slavery. And it was actually the first American public document protesting slavery and the first written public declaration of universal human rights. 175 years before the Emancipation Proclamation. What about Harriet Beecher Stowe? Mark Noel, a, a historian, comments on her immensely influential novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, where he says that it exerted its greatest impact, at least in part because the book was such a forceful summation of Christian revivalism and Christian abolition. And so it was her deeply held Christian beliefs that drove her activism and her her civil protests. Now, there are a few things that we should keep in mind when considering civil protests. First of all, our priority should be the message of Christ. That ultimately, changing the world and trying to curb the evil in the world is a good thing, but ultimately, God is going to reestablish a new kingdom on earth. And the way that people gain entrance into that kingdom is through Jesus Christ. And so that should be our top priority. Number two, it could create barriers to the gospel. I think that some of us feel very passionate about our political views, and that's fine. I think that it's important for you to remain engaged in the political sphere, to, do, to uh, view your ability to vote as a stewardship. But we need to consider that the way that we speak about these things or the way that we go about protesting in the public sphere could be alienating to those whom we hope to influence for Christ. You know, sometimes when I get on social media, I see believers who I know are very committed to Christ, and yet they don't seem to see the connection between the the things that they are saying and the way that that might be alienating half the people who know them. Thirdly, legislation can curb, not cure, the human condition. Politics is not going to transform people's hearts. The love of God will. Okay, let's draw a few conclusions. I think, first of all, God established governing authorities to curb evil in the world. The alternative, as we saw, can be much worse. Secondly, we should submit to our governing authorities so long as it doesn't enjoin what the Bible forbids, or forbid what the Bible enjoins. And so we are morally obligated to disobey the government when it calls on us to do something that's immoral. Thirdly, real change takes place through spiritual transformation. You know, if you're here tonight, maybe you feel drawn to politics. Maybe you feel 
passionate about politics. Maybe you feel like you want your life to really matter, to count for something bigger than just yourself. Well, God says that you can actually change people's lives when you embark upon the mission he's called you to by becoming an ambassador for Christ. But that starts by first becoming reconciled to God, by turning to him and receiving Jesus Christ. And finally, one day God will establish his just and loving rulership on earth. And that's something that we should think about as we live here on earth, knowing that one day God is going to exert his benevolent rulership here on earth. So grateful, Lord, that I'm a part of a church where we have uh, a diverse, um, you know, political church that is diverse along the political spectrum. That um, we're split down the middle, about fifty-fifty. I think that's amazing, and um, we pray that we can be a community that shines uh, as being distinct in this world where people who have very strongly held political views can actually be in community with one another and show love to one another, even though they disagree about very important issues. And um, I pray that that would have the effect that people who are investigating you would, would wonder what binds us all together. What, what is the basis for this unity that we have? And... We thank you that this isn't something that we have to create on our own, but it's something that you have imparted to us through Jesus Christ. And so I pray as we, you know, think through these topics, pray that you would give us wisdom on how to navigate them, especially in the area of civil protest. I pray that you would help us to be wise, but most importantly, that we would be representatives for you, both in the way that we speak, but also in the way that we act. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.